Welcome wherever you are today. My name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor of St. Peter's. And before we turn to God's word, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that although we cannot be physically present to one another, we're still able to gather. We're still able to be united in you. And you still meet with us. And so as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts, that we not grow cold, and that you'd apply it to our feet, that we'd not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There is a well-known screenplay about a man named Ron. He's newly in love. He's at his office talking to his friends about it. And they all start sharing their stories of falling in love. But it turns out none of them have really been in love before. And midway through the conversation, Ron's friend Brick pipes up and he says, I love carpet. I love desk. And Ron asks, Brick, are you just looking at things in the office and saying that you love them? And then Brick replies with the now famous words, I love lamp. Jesus says, I am the door. And it might not be as absurd as Brick, but it is a little odd. Jesus is comparing himself to an inanimate object. What are we supposed to make of it? A few years ago, I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, visiting a friend. He had just moved there, and on the weekend, he took me to the Sunday service of his church. It was a relatively new church. They met in an old movie theater, and the pastor was preaching on this very passage, and I remember it quite clearly because on the stage, the pastor had constructed a pen out of baby gates, this massive fortress of baby gates with an opening. And as the pastor was explaining what Jesus meant by being the door, he laid down in front of the baby gates and he essentially said, when Jesus said he was the door, he wasn't talking about being some object, but about being a good shepherd who used his body to protect the sheep, because this is what shepherds used to do. And for me, the image of a pastor lying on the ground in front of a fortress of baby gates just made the metaphor of Jesus being the door all the more strange. Now, whether or not ancient shepherds used to do this isn't entirely clear. It's more likely a practice that was developed quite a bit after the time of Christ's life. And even if it were the case, it shows that we more readily relate to Jesus being a good shepherd than we do to Jesus being a door. But in, according to our passage, Jesus is both. In John chapter 10, there's two I am statements. Jesus says, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. And of course, they relate to one another, but they also say something unique about Jesus independently too. So today, I'm going to focus exclusively on this bewildering statement, I am the door. Next week, Lloyd will look at I am the good shepherd. So if I don't answer anything this week, you can rest assured that Lloyd is going to answer every single question you could ever have about this passage. But for now, I want to talk about how Jesus is the door. And to do so, let me set the stage quickly. In the previous chapter, Jesus healed a blind man on the Sabbath. And this infuriated the Pharisees, the religious elites of Jesus's time. There were a bunch of rules and stipulations they rigidly obeyed to honor the Sabbath. And they considered healing 
to be a Sabbath-breaking act. So they interrogated this man who was healed by Jesus. They even dragged his parents to be interrogated. And after they were through with his parents, they even brought the man again for another round of questioning. And as the previous chapter ends, and we turn the page to start chapter 10, we read in verses 1 through 6, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. The them in this passage is the same group of Pharisees that Jesus has been engaging in the prior chapter. The conversation and the confrontation that's going on in chapter 9 is still going on in chapter 10, even though we've put a marker changing it as a different chapter. And like us, they're a little mystified by what Jesus means in this parable. A sheepfold and a door, a shepherd, a gatekeeper, sheep and strangers. What is Jesus going on about? And so if we struggle to get our minds around this parable initially, we're in good company. Jesus' original audience struggled with it too. And so as we seek to understand what Jesus means when he says, I am the door, I want to make three points. Doors, the door, and names. Doors, the door, and names. First, let's begin with doors. We'll pick up the conversation between Jesus and these Pharisees in verse 7 of chapter 10. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Before we talk about what Jesus means, I want to talk about doors generally. Think about how many doors you walk through in a given day. Sorry, I should say, think about how many doors you used to walk through in a given day before the social distancing measures of COVID-19. But in any given day, we go in and out of so many doors. We go out of the door of our bedroom, into the door of our bathroom, out of our front door, into the door of our car or bus or rideshare. We walk through the door of a coffee shop, into a door that is glass and just slightly too clean, into the door of our office, in through the door of our boss's office. So many doors in a given day. We go in and out of them and Often, as we do, the space around us changes. Going through doors is such a habitual part of our day that we don't usually stop and ask, what is my philosophy of doors? If you were a philosopher of the door, if you had a PhD in doorology and studied under Richard Sandlin, uh, you might start asking questions like, what is a door? Why do we walk through doors? Is it solely out of function? Or is something else driving us to walk through these different doors each day? Where do they take us? What do we expect to find on the other side? What will I be like when I exit the door? The late actress Elizabeth Taylor actually shared her philosophy of doors. She said, I feel very adventurous, 
There's so many doors to be opened, and I'm not afraid to look behind them. On some level, our journey through the different doors in life is driven by a basic question. Where will this door take me? Think about when you step through the door of an office into the reception area for a job interview. Did you just open the door that will land you the career of your dreams? Will it open up provision and purpose and status? Think about when you walk through the door of a restaurant to sit down for a date. Did it just open you up to the possibility of a new relationship? Did it open up the possibility of love and companionship and maybe a family? Think about when you walk through the door of a counselor and you take that risk and you sit on the couch and did you just open yourself up to a space where you might address pain and hurt that's been holding you back and perhaps the possibilities of healing and newness? We walk through these kinds of doors with a sense of adventure and expectation, but we don't only ask, where will this door take me? We also ask, will this be the door that opens life up to me? Will this be the door that opens life up to me? Behind each door, we're hoping to find something, some kind of goodness. We want to step into meaningful purpose or healthy relationships or some sort of um, well-being. Obviously, none of the doors I mentioned or the spaces they open up are bad. But sometimes we open doors to places and spaces that probably should have remained closed. In my late teenage years, I started opening up all kinds of doors, especially doors to parties, which then opened up doors to drugs, which then opened up doors to uh, bad trips. And on more than one occasion, I was overwhelmed by the substances in my system that I would run from the party, however far away it was, all the way back to my parents' home. And driven by anxiety and madness, I would race home and I'd get to the door and I would open it and then I would feel a sense of relief because I knew I was suddenly in a space through that door where I was safe, where I could let things wear off and also face the reprimand of my parents. I've opened many doors throughout my life that I wish I had it, and I'm sure you have too. And we open these doors looking to escape, but then end up trapped. Or we open a door hoping to disappear, but then end up being stuck with ourselves. What lies behind a door isn't always good. You know, the doors we open can sometimes leave us vulnerable or even open to exploitation. As Jesus says a few times in this parable, there are thieves and robbers who seek to steal and kill and destroy. This is a pretty vivid image, but you have to remember this was a literal, literal reality for sheep. If a thief got into the pen and took a sheep, the outcome was that that sheep was going to be fleeced and butchered and then its carcass discarded. But we too can open a door and, and be exposed to influences and people who might take advantage of us, even dehumanize us in the process. So hopefully... Over time, we grow in wisdom. We start to learn what doors to open and what doors are better shut. And we're wired in such a way that we will try to focus on the doors that give us the 
most sense of enjoyment and purpose. And we will open these doors and try to spend as much time as we can through these doors, but they might actually distract us from finding the door we deeply long for. There's this story about Albert Einstein that I love. Apparently, he struggled to find his home in his neighborhood because his mind was so preoccupied all the time. He was opening the door to the universe, developing the general theory of relativity, thinking about uh, wormholes. And apparently he would be so caught up in what was on the other side of this door that as he would walk home, he couldn't find his home in his neighborhood. And so his solution was to paint his front door bright red. But I bring Einstein up because it shows us that we can get so distracted in our minds and in our hearts that we can't find the door to our home. We might even forget or lose touch with the parts of ourselves that deeply longs to walk through a door where we might feel rest, where we might feel at ease among ourselves because we're known by those who know us best. But I'm not just talking about a door into our physical homes during our lives here. There's a longing, a sense implanted within us that there is a home calling our name. And we can't quite seem to find it, even when we're at perfect ease in our earthly homes. There's a door we still want to walk through. It's no surprise we resonate so much with the U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And so we keep opening doors in hopes that behind this door might be the thing that finally puts my soul at ease. Or maybe disenchantment starts to sink in because you've opened so many doors, door after door, and yet you still haven't found what you're looking for. You haven't found that door that opens you up to the home that's been calling your name. So having thought about doors, I want to move to our second point and talk about the door. Jesus says he's the door. He says in verses 9 through 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, they will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When we open a door, on some level we're asking, Where will this door take me? Will this be the door that opens life up to me? And Jesus stands before us and he says, I am the door. And we might be inclined to answer, to where? What do you open up for us? And fortunately, Jesus gets straight to the point. Because the Pharisees, they've already struggled to track with Jesus. And so Jesus stops telling it slant and tells them as it is. Unlike other doors that can rob us and diminish us, Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, they will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This is his own way of saying that he is the door that opens us up to salvation and life. Think back to his encounter with the blind man. If the Pharisees had their way, the blind man would still be blind. The blind man would still be blind. They are content for him to be diminished so long as their rules are satisfied. So long as the Sabbath is observed. 
But what kind of spirituality and religion is that? They are unable to open this man up to restoration and sight and well-being. But when this blind man meets Jesus, it's different. Jesus is the door that opens him up to the sights of life. And by the end of the whole encounter, the man comes to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the door that opens him up to salvation. Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, they will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Salvation and life. That's where Jesus leads. That's what he opens up to us. Now, whenever we hear the word saved in Scripture, Scripture inspires us to think big and dream big rather than have our imaginations be small and confined. You see, a small and confined understanding of this word saved or salvation is to think of it as insurance. That you're saved, it means you've purchased what's required for you in the afterlife, but it's just for then, not now. That's a very small view of salvation, and it's not the view of Scripture. Salvation and being saved in Scripture is a big and beautiful picture of all of life being woven back into harmony and wholeness. Jesus is the thread being woven through all of this broken tapestry of life and weaving it back into a coherent picture of harmony and love and flourishing. Yes, salvation involves the forgiveness of sins. Jesus speaks words of forgiveness over us. But forgiveness isn't just alleviating our conscience but transforming our relationships. When we're forgiven, the outcome is that we're reconciled to God. We're adopted into his family as children, but then we're also adopted into a family, which means forgiveness and reconciliation changes the way we relate to others. Salvation also includes then the restoration of broken relationships, the way we treat one another, and even the way we love those who are different than us. But we see in the Gospels that salvation also includes the healing of bodies. The blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, the paralyzed leap. And yes, this is a sign of the kingdom to come, but there are miracles that we can pray to experience even now. And so salvation is the total transformation of the entire earth and cosmos. Everything will be made new including our lives. So when Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, they will be saved, he means we're being saved into the great drama of God who's reconciling all things to himself in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And so if we enter through Jesus as the door, we step into this big and beautiful reality of salvation. But Jesus also says that whoever enters through him will go in and out and find pasture. And there's a surprising amount of analogy drawn about this throughout church history. You know, inside is the church. Outside is the world. Inside is heaven. Outside is earth. Simply put, inside is us and outside is them. But I don't think 
That's what Jesus has in mind. Although I can understand why people draw these analogies. But I don't think this is what he has in mind because going in and out and finding shelter or being led out into pasture, that was just the everyday life of a sheep. That's what life was composed of for them going in at night, being led out in the morning. That was life. So if we keep the bigness of salvation in mind, what Jesus is saying is that he opens up an entirely new way of living, a new way of being in the world. Salvation doesn't start later, it starts now. And so when we enter into life through him, we discover life abundantly, life the way it was meant to be, life that is a foreshadowing of the life that is to come when God makes all things new. Life is abundant because the home that has been calling our name has finally been found. So let's consider our last point, names. It wasn't uncommon for a shepherd to give their sheep names. Dotty, you know, Stripey, Spork, Steve, usual sheep names. Did you notice earlier in our passage, in verse 3, Jesus said very nonchalantly, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus calls us by name, but not just any name. I've been reading through a series of books called The Book of Beb, by Frederick Buechner. And in the third book, which is called Love Feast, the main character, Antonio Parr, has a revelation through a dream. And here's what he says. There was something written, and how do I say it? What was written wasn't Antonio Parr, or Tono, or Bopper, or Sir, or any other name I've been called by various people at various times in my life. And yet, it was my name. It was a name so secret that I wouldn't tell it even if I remembered it, and I don't remember it. But if anybody were ever to show up and call me by it, I would recognize it in a second. And the chances are that if the person who called me by it gave me the signal, I'd follow him to the ends of the earth. Frederick Buechner captures something rich here. It arrested me when I first read it. Because Beekner articulates something true about us. No matter what we may be called throughout our lives, our names never quite fit. Growing up, I didn't like my name Alistair, so I insisted that everybody call me Al. Please don't call me Al. Because in high school, South Park came out. And then I didn't like being called Al. I insisted that everybody call me Alistair. And I've been called all sorts of nicknames and names throughout my life, and I'm sure you have too, but none of them ever quite fit entirely, and I've even met people who can't stand their name. But whether we like our birth name or not, there's a sense of unknown within us. Even though God has endowed humans with the ability to name things, there's a sense of unknown within ourselves. Even though God has endowed humanity with the gift and ability to name things, we're still unable to name a part of ourselves, and yet we're aware of it. There's a door we can't seem to open and find the answer, 
But should someone be able to name it, they would know us perhaps better than we even know ourselves. That is the door I believe we're all looking for, that we're searching for in life. A door to the home calling our name. And as Beekner puts it in the voice of Antonio Parr, if the person who called me by it gave me the signal, I'd follow him to the ends of the earth. And of course, Beekner is alluding to Revelation, where Jesus makes a promise to the church. I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. No matter what doors we walk through in life, no matter how good whatever may be on the other side is, whether it's the door into career or relationship or healing, we will never enter through a door on this earth that can answer that need. Nothing in this earth can name us the way that Jesus can. But we, when we enter through life with him, we're told he has a name waiting for us. Deep is calling out to deep. He knows that desire we have for a home where we discover our name. And he says, I'm the door. I open up that space to you. And even though your life is hidden in me, even though it's still being revealed to you, I will change the way you live and breathe and have your being even now. Because Jesus knows us and he names us and he will lead us into abundant life here and now and forever. And at this time, I think we're all wondering, who are we? You know, there's lots of doors closed right now. Windows and entrances boarded up in plywood. And as things are stripped back, we start to feel restless in this longing for normalcy. And we feel a sense of discomfort or out of sorts within ourselves. I know I do. And yet there's a door before us. And we don't have to knock loudly. We don't have to try to pry it open. There is a door that will open to us should we come to it. Jesus is the door. And he will open up to us. He will even guide us through. And he has a name for you and he is calling you. So enter life through him. If you do, you will be a part of what is really real, a world being set right by a faithful and good God who leads us like a good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you've given us the door and that you invite us to walk through it and discover abundant life. And right now, Lord, Life doesn't feel abundant. So we pray you would meet us. We long, Lord, to be physically present to one another. We long to gather at your table to receive your bread and wine, to feast upon Christ's body and blood. And yet right now, we're in homes, separated, unable to commune in the ways we're used to.
But Lord, we don't think that stops you from sharing your abundant life with us. So please, as our good shepherd, lead us through that door that brings us to life abundant, even in uncertain times like this. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.